So we have made our way, finally, to Luke chapter 12. I know, I know you thought we were never going to get there, but here we are. We have made it, Luke chapter 12, and Jesus is now speaking to his disciples. Remember, he had been, he had, he had healed the mute guy, and the Pharisees said, oh, he just does that by the power of the devil. He's down by Jerusalem now, and he ends up going to dinner with that Pharisee. He invites him over to uh, his house for the main meal, and by the time that's all done, Jesus has given them the truth that they only take care of the outside of the cup and not the inside. And the lawyers who put all kinds of burdens on people and won't lift them with their little finger, and that basically they're all hypocrites. And their religiosity is not a right reflection of their relationship with God and who he is. And so they, they are just determined to destroy Jesus. And so... He steps out of that, and under these circumstances, thousands of people have gathered. Why have thousands of people gathered? Well, remember in that day and age, particularly in Israel, in the, in the nation of Israel, there, we live in just, in many ways, different times. In many ways, we're still the same. But if you're interested in what's going on in the day and age, we, of course, will either go to our phone or our computer or the TV, and we will go to the internet and we'll find out what's going on. Well, they didn't have any of that. So what they would do is actually pay attention to events, for real. It, can you believe it? They actually got together it's, it's in groups. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe, but they actually did. And the temple complex, which in Jerusalem is where Jesus is. He's down there near Jerusalem, near the temple, and he's out there teaching, and here are the religious leaders, and the people of the day, one of the major topics of conversation, of course, was religion. Israel, it's a very religious nation. And you got up in the morning thinking about it, you had to think about it all day because you wanted to be ceremonially clean, and of course the Pharisees talked about that all the time, and they're constantly pushing this. This is the conversation that's going on all the time. So Jesus shows up, and he's suddenly got this entirely different way of looking at our relationship with God. So you've got Jesus, John the Baptist, the disciples, and not only that, Jesus can do these miracles. Well, when you suddenly have Jesus and the religious leaders this is an event that is going to draw people. They, okay, let's see how this goes. This ought to be a really interesting conversation. I can't wait to see Jesus and what he has to say to the Pharisees. Remembering that the average person, they can't argue with the Pharisees. It's not like you can go home and Google the verse you're looking for, right? I mean, they have no, they don't have a copy of the Old Testament sitting in the living room. And to go to the synagogue and your ability to find verses. And there is, by the way, not yet written any New Testament. So they're at the mercy of these folks. It would appear by this time that the average person, unfortunately, in their decision as to who they're going to side with, Jesus or the Pharisees, the majority of people have decided with the Pharisees. They have looked at Jesus what their expectation and the major reason why they don't side with Jesus is because when they think about the Messiah and they recognize that that's who Jesus claims to be, they're looking at him thinking, all right, you have come before us, you have put forward this idea and you've made a 
pretty clear to anyone who's paying attention that you are our Messiah. All right, when are you going to get rid of the Romans? I mean, where's your army? Don't you have an army? Don't you have some means of somehow getting us out from under Roman oppression? Jesus isn't doing any of that. In fact, if Jesus is fighting any kind of war at all, it's with the Pharisees. He's going after them. His war, as it were, seems to be this continuous discussion about how the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees are doctrinally wrong. And Jesus seems much more concerned about the truth and a true relationship with God than anything that has to do with politics or the Romans or any of that. He's not condemning the Romans at all. Doesn't even seem to bother him that the Romans are completely in charge of the nation. That's not his target at all. He'll speak about it occasionally, but that no, what he wants to get are the people who claim to be the people of God, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And that's where this conversation occurs. It's within that broader context. And so we've got thousands of people trying to hear this conversation that Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees. There's so many of them that they're stepping on one another. I mean, this is because there's no microphones. There's, there's no amplification. And so if you want to hear, you've just got to get close enough to hear. And in the midst of this, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, all right, let me help you guys out here. You need to be aware. Beware of the Pharisees. Beware of the Pharisees. There are religious teachers. Yeah, no. You guys have got to step beyond this. They are not leading you to God. They're leading you away. And here's their major problem. They're hypocrites. And their hypocrisy is like a leaven. And once you let it grow, it just begins to grow and grow more and more. The problem here with the Pharisees and their teaching Once you believe that the way to have a right relationship with God is based on how good a person I am, if I will do the right actions, then I will have a right relationship with God. Okay, there are just so many things wrong with that. First of all, it doesn't work. I mean, let's just be clear about that, right? This doesn't work. Our relationship with God, we're not in charge of our relationship with God. It's not like somehow my works dictate how this goes. So I'm going to do the works and then God's going to be obligated to show favor on me because, well, after all, I've done all the right works. Therefore, God is in debt to me. That's the problem with this. This is, this is where this goes. The minute you start thinking that, well, if I do the right works, God is obligated to give me whatever it is you think God is supposed to give you. And of course, what they believed is that, well, if I do the right works, then I am righteous. And because I am righteous, therefore, God, should the Messiah say, show up. Well, obviously, we're on his side. If he's going to set up some kind of kingdom, any authority that he hands out, well, we're just going to be welcomed right into the kingdom and we can rule and reign with him because, well, because we're the people of God. We're righteous. Of course, they're not. They're not righteous at all. The problem is they think that the relationship with God is based on what they do. 
It's not. It's not based on what they do. It's based on what God has done. The relationship with God is initiated by God. It's God's mercy. It's God's grace. It's God's compassion. It's God's love. This is how our relationship with God and what it's based on. When we realize that, when we wake up to, wait a minute, all my good works are like filthy rags. And oh, by the way, they could look at Isaiah and see that. That is the Old Testament. That's, you don't have to read Romans to find that. It's right there in Isaiah. They could have seen that in their Old Testament anytime they wanted to look at it. The problem with false religion is this idea that somehow I can please God with who I am. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I can't come to God and demand that because of who I am, God accept me. What kind of an approach is that? How is that ever going to work? It doesn't work. In fact, the very pursuit of insisting that God accept me because of who I am seem to be self-evident, right? That that is just proud, egotistical, and oh, by the way, selfish. Okay, proud, egotistical selfishness is all sin. And so for me to take my sin, my very sin nature, the very thing that drives me, is to promote myself and to promote what a great person I am, what a good person I am, and, and why just look at me. And to take all of that and bring it to God and just say, all right, now I want your approval. On its face, it's going to get you condemned. And yet, this is exactly what they teach. This is exactly the standard that they are setting. Simply act religious, simply put on an outward display of fulfilling the ritualistic obligations of the Mosaic law and what you will and God will have to be happy with you okay the Old Testament law if you tried to fulfill it if you looked at Leviticus and you thought all right I'm from the heart with a true relationship with God I'm going to really try to I'm going to really try to fulfill this. I'm going to look at these sacrifices and, and not just the ones that are on certain days, not, not like the Passover or that, but, but just a voluntary sacrifice or, or sacrifice for sin. Not the Day of Atonement, but regular sacrifices for sin. If I'm going to actually do this, next thing you know, I've slaughtered every lamb I own. I mean, I, I just look at myself and think, you know, I, I really don't love my neighbor like I love myself. I mean, I may like my neighbor, but I mean, who are we trying to kid, right? I really love myself, and I'm not taking care of my neighbor like I take care of me. No one does that. No one. And so if I were to go under even the Mosaic law and look at the Ten Commandments and think about how in the world I could possibly fulfill them, I can't possibly fulfill them. I would have to, I would have to slaughter every lamb in sight, kill the bulls, kill the goats, kill them all until there's rivers of blood and still... My sin nature has not gone anywhere. I am compelled to cry out to God, mercy. Have mercy. Because if you're not merciful to me, then I, none of this is going to work. And they can find all of that in their Old Testament. It's, it's not like it's hidden. 
Multiple prophets will say to them, I loathe your new moons and your Sabbaths. Stop bringing your sacrifices. Get a new heart, will you? This is a continual message of the prophets. They should have seen it. They should have heard it. They should have understood it. They didn't. They chose not to. Paul will say of them in Romans 10, they, not knowing God's standard for righteousness, instead seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Instead of actually subjecting themselves to God's standard, which is repentance, humbleness, coming to God, begging his mercy and forgiveness. Oh, no, no. We're going to set our own standards of righteousness. And so we start doing all of these these works. Instead of coming to God by faith, we come to God through our own works. And of course, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you're, you're continuously focusing on yourself. And even if I am nice to my neighbor, I might be nice to my neighbor. I might be very nice. I might be generous. I might be kind. I might be compassionate. I might reach out to my neighbors. I might not, too. But I might do all of that. But if I'm doing all of that just to make myself look good, even that, the very pursuit of that is for my own selfish ends. Yes, I'm nice to my neighbors so that God will be nice to me. Because after all, what I'm really trying to do is manipulate God into accepting me. And you, you can't manipulate God into accepting you. And if you're looking at this situation saying, well, then I have to be righteous before God. I have to do righteous works. Okay, well, you can't do that either. We're not righteous. And so what you have to do is take sin and make it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until this is tiny little thing down there that you're like, well, that sin is that little list of things that I'm not doing. Of course, that's not what sin is. Sin is selfishness, it's pride, it's anger, it's all of these things in the heart that they're not addressing. And of course, they're not addressing them because they can't address them. That's the problem with religious hypocrisy. If we're trying to do outward works to manipulate God into convincing him that we're righteous, it just doesn't work. No matter how hard we try. Because at the core is this motivation to make ourselves look good. And that just undermines everything. Undermines every effort we're making. I'm not actually loving my neighbor because I love my neighbor. I'm simply acting like I love my neighbor so that I can convince God that I love my neighbor so that he'll let me into heaven. Because, well, after all, I've got to convince God of what a good person I am. But I'm only good because it works out good for me. I mean, if God didn't actually ask me to love my neighbor, who cares about my neighbor? I'm only doing it because, well, because I think somehow that's going to convince God. Okay, it's not going to convince God. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out to them. All of your efforts here at somehow trying to make God think you're someone you're not is total and complete hypocrisy. It's not going to work. And so Jesus is going to refer First of all, to God the Father and our relationship with him. Then he's going to refer to himself in our relationship with Jesus. And then he's going to refer to the Holy Spirit. And whether we get to all three of those this morning, we'll see. But so there's, he, he points out three things about the Father that should really make us hesitant to think that maybe we're going to get away with this. First of all, nothing is covered that will not, nothing is, is covered or hidden that will not 
be known. And whatever you whisper in the dark is going to be brought out into the light. And whatever you've whispered in the inner room will be shattered from the rooftop. So if in your heart you realize that, well, I really am proud and selfish, I really do think pretty highly of myself. If you're thinking somehow you're going to hide that and get away with it, you're not. If kind of find out in your heart you really do hate your neighbor, no matter how nice you are to them, and you think that, well, no one will ever know that, oh, yes, yes, they will. Yes, that will be shattered from the rooftop. That will be displayed broadly in the light. The day of judgment, which is what Jesus is referring to here, when the day of judgment arrives, the heart and intent and the thoughts of everyone will be revealed. Now, if as a believer, you have genuinely sought to glorify God with the things that you have done, and you have been truly motivated to act in a way that hopefully brings glory to God and who he is, well, that will be revealed and you will be greatly rewarded for your efforts, even though they may not appear in this life to be particularly effective. I think it's hard to say actually what our effect our works have in this world. Uh, I think we probably have a much bigger effect on things we're not even paying attention to than perhaps the things we are and thinking that we're paying attention to. But if we're motivated to bring glory to God, he will reward us tremendously. But all of those folks who have been motivated by nothing more than elevating themselves, it will all be revealed. And this is why, because sometimes we're mystified. We think, well, there's this person I know who seems to be the nicest person in the world. They would give you the shirt off their back. They, they, I, Maybe you have some neighbor and you're like, every Christmas, they bring over cookies. They, they give gifts to my kids. I, you know, they're just the nicest folks out there. But if I mention going to church to them, they don't, they, they don't want anything to do with the church or anything like that. And you may think, boy, come the day of judgment, they were such a nice person. Mm, well, yeah, in this world, maybe they were. But the question that is going to be answered at that moment is exactly why Did they act that way? Because if they only acted that way in an attempt to manipulate God, that will be revealed. In fact, you often find if you can sit and have a conversation with this seemingly very nice person and you try to point out to them that they, like everyone else, is a sinner and they need to come to God and seek his forgiveness, you may discover that that very nice person they can get pretty angry and they may not be so nice in the future because you've put your finger on the problem, which is that all of us are sinners and we're not really happy about having that revealed. But the fact is, you, you, you might as well get it revealed now. Get it revealed now and get it out of the way. Next thing Jesus says is, don't be afraid. When it comes time to live your Christian life, Don't fall into the trap of being fearful of people. Don't fear people. If you want to fear somebody, fear God. People, all they can do is kill you. And after that, they can't do anything more to you. Fear God, who not only can kill you, but after this can cast you into hell. And by the way, if you happen to run into people who want to try to convince you that hell is nothing more than the grave... 
and that you just die and you're annihilated or you just die. And there's no real literal place called hell where people actually go and there's any kind of flame or, or eternal punishment or anything like that. Okay, anybody who tries to convince you with that, you might want to bring them to this passage and have them get a look at it and explain to you this verse. Because Jesus is making a clear contrast between simply dying and then dying and have something else happen. And that something else, by the way, that Jesus is warning of, he calls hell. And it's worse than just dying. I mean, the whole point of what Jesus is saying here is that don't worry about people who can just kill you. Worry about someone who can kill you and then cast you into hell. That Don't allow yourself to be drawn into some kind of fearful response in which you're like, well, I say I love God, but I don't actually live it. I don't want anybody to know because that might not go well. Careful about that. In fact, we'll get to that in just a moment. His disciples, which is who he's speaking to, right? Here's this enormous crowd. People are stepping on one another. He's just got done having it out with the Pharisees who are doing everything they can to undermine him. And he's looking at his disciples and saying, now look, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't live this double life. No one's got time to live a double life. You barely got time to live the one you got. So make sure that the things you do in secret can be seen in the open. Be careful about doing things in secret that you hope no one finds out about. Be very careful about doing stuff that you're like, well, nobody sees me doing this. Okay, if you're thinking that, you might want to think very carefully about whether or not you should be doing that, okay? This is, whatever you're doing in secret is going to be broadcast. Be prepared to answer to God for it. And when you confess Jesus, which he's going to talk about here in just a moment, When you confess Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. Expect it. And he's looking at his disciples. Of course, that's exactly what happened to them. They went out and declared Jesus to be the Messiah. And they were thrown out of the synagogue. They were cast out of their families. They were driven out of their nation. This is exactly what was going to happen to them. And Jesus is like, don't be hypocritical. Don't allow yourself to say, well, I'm a secret Christian. Okay, that's not going to fly you need to realize and look out there and figure out that once you declare that that you're a christian well it's you're going to have persecution come your way but don't worry about that don't be fearful of those people just get out and preach the truth get out and preach forgiveness get out and preach mercy get out and preach the compassion of god it's okay to get out and to Take care of your neighbors and to be kind to them, even if they hate you. It's, you know, it's okay. Speak to them anyway. Be nice to people who hate you. This is what we are called to do. We're not called to go out and get angry and mad and condemn the world. God is going to condemn the world. Don't worry about that. God is going to take care of that. When Paul writes to the church at Rome, In Romans chapter 1, and if you read Romans chapter 1 and you just look at our society, you're like, ay, ay, ay. Particularly when you start looking at, you've got to start back at the top. Their original problem was when they knew God, they worshipped him not as God. Neither were they thankful. 
but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. And that is the key. Once you look at that lie, this lie that somehow the creation is what we should ascribe all the attributes of deity to. The moment you make that error, down you go. And you just look at it. God gives them up three times. How do we as a society make that error? Well, it's evolution. We point to evolution and say, the universe created itself. There was this big bang and a bunch of mistakes, and here we are. And it's just, it didn't require any God. It didn't require any kind of intelligence. Why, if you just let the system work, if you just get out there and let it all happen, some big explosion will occur, and mistake after mistake, and mutation after mutation, and you could go from sea slime to here we are. And the universe just created itself, all great glory, laud, and honor to the universe. Aren't we so glad that the sea slime decided to slime out of the sea and turn into us? Okay, that is worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. That is worshiping the power of the sun, moon, and stars to somehow make the earth and produce us. And if you think we don't engage in idolatry as a society, you just haven't thought hard enough about it. This is exactly what we're doing. We're taking the attributes of God and his knowledge and his creativity and his design and his his incredible intelligence that he brought to bear onto the creation before us and just ascribe it to chance. All glory to chance. Isn't it just wonderful? Uh, No. I, I don't know about you. I don't have faith enough to be, to be an atheist who somehow thinks the universe created itself. Not only did nothing create something, it created everything. Wow, isn't that great? Aren't you so glad that you are the ultimate cosmic mistake? I, okay, we have a whole society, by the way, that we're teaching them, you know, this high, where you're pumping their heads full of it. And it's not surprising then as you look at Romans and you watch the descent and you watch how that all goes, that that's us. That has happened to us. But here's what's important to note. That book is written to believers. The book of Romans is written to the believers at Rome. And it's written to those so that they will understand and so that we will understand as we look at our society and watch it all fall apart around us, that we will understand the truth, that we'll not be mystified by it all. We can see how this all works. But the book of Romans is about reconciliation. It is about kindness. It is about loving our neighbor. It is, it is about reaching out to the lost and telling them about the love of Christ. It's not our job to get out and to condemn the lost. It's not our job to get up and, and tell them what Terrible, wicked reprobates they all are. They are, but it's not our job to get out and tell them all that. It's to help them understand that we say enough of that to them in the context of giving them the gospel so that they will be open to the truth. I want to think carefully about putting on you the big sandwich board with you know, the fires of hell and you know, walking around telling everybody they better turn or burn. Um, okay, maybe God could use that. Maybe. Uh, But mostly that message is actually to those who claim to be religious. 
When Paul went to Mars Hill and talked to those folks, you know, he simply gave them the truth about who God was and talked about the resurrection. And they laughed at him, which, by the way, he knew they were going to do, but he gave them the truth anyway. He didn't get up and wail on them all. Get up and try to share with them the truth of who God is and how this all goes. We want to pull people out of the fire, right? This is what Jude says. Have mercy on some and save others, snatching them out of the fire. Have mercy on them with fear. This is what Jude tells us. Paul writes to the church at Rome, by the way. In Romans chapter 1, he talks about this descent. But by the time we get to Romans chapter 12, he says to them, look, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. And by the way, don't take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, Give him drink. This is what we are called to do. We are not called to sit in judgment on everybody. We're called to be kind to people, to talk to them about the message of God in which they can be rescued from the coming judgment. This is who we are. This is what our message is. Don't worry. Just speak the truth. Talk about God. Talk about who he is. Talk about Jesus. Talk about the message. And don't worry, they'll hate you. There'll be any number of people who will not want to hear that. And you can be as loving and as kind and as compassionate as you possibly can be. And by the way, you should be. They'll still hate you. Preach it anyway. And the third reason why God the Father, he says, look, are not five sparrows for six sold for two cents? And yet one of them is not forgotten before God. In fact, the very hairs on your head are numbered. Don't fear you're more valuable than many sparrows. Sparrows were, you know, you know what sparrows are. They're these tiny little birds, you know, they fly around, you look at them. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were going to have a meal from a bird, you know, there aren't sparrow McNuggets for a reason, right? I mean, that is really not the bird of choice here. All right, got 10,000 sparrows and two pounds of meat. You know what I mean? It's, it's, they're tiny little things. But they did sell them in the ancient world because you could get them basically two for a penny and five for two cents. You know what I mean? And, and they would take them home and they would eat them because if you were in poverty, that was what you had to do. They were sold for that. And you might think, particularly if you see a big flock of sparrows, that, well, I don't know, is that, that 1,000 sparrows or just 998? I don't know. Uh, guess what? God knows. God knows. God knows exactly how many sparrows there are, and he knows exactly where they are. And the fact is that if a single sparrow falls, God is well aware of it. There may be more than we can even count as they fly by. There's not more than God can count. And God is concerned about all of them. How do you think the sparrows manage to lay eggs and reproduce and get more sparrows? How exactly does that work? you have any idea? Did you feed them? point is that God does care. God does know. And God has been taking care of... I, you watch these nature shows on TV, right? You watch them. And I, I watched one the other day. I thought it was just really... just very interesting. So they've got these... Uh, I think it's, it's the porpoises. And they have discovered... 
now because they have drones and they have the ability to actually get up above the action, as it were. And they have discovered that there are pods of, of dolphins that will hunt by pushing the fish into a shallow spot and then several dolphins will swim around them and use their tail to stir up the mud and make a circle of mud. And then the fish will, and they'll make this circle tighter and tighter and tighter until the fish start trying to jump out of it because they're still in the clear water in the center, but they realize this is not good and we don't want to get, and when they jump, the, the dolphins will pop up and eat them all. What's really interesting is as I watched this, they started, it was almost like the person who discovered this wanted to take credit for the dolphins doing this. Like somehow this was this new thing that they had discovered and they're watching the dolphins do this. And it's almost like by their observance, somehow they taught the dolphins. And and you're just looking at this like, okay, first of all, dolphins have probably been doing this for the last, you know, however many thousands of years dolphins have been around. And the fact that you just woke up to it the other day and looked at it, oh, this new behavior, never observed before. Okay, well, that's because you didn't look. It's not like somehow they learned it yesterday. Oh, the sauce. It was just very interesting to watch. God has given these animals, all the animals of the world, which are still here and growing and prospering. Why? Because God is watching over them and has been watching over them the whole time. And just because we've woken up to it and have finally been able to get our telescopes or microscopes or drones or whatever it is we've done to finally get in there and find all of these things going on in all these various places. Do you think when they dig down a thousand feet and, and suddenly pull up the dirt and find out that, you know, there's stuff in this dirt that's alive. What? You think God hasn't known about that since he created the world? I just look at that and think, God has got more stuff going on than has even crossed our minds. God is even greater than we have ever even imagined. And of course he is. Glory to God, the creator. Do you think a sparrow could fall without God knowing? Of course not. And so, and the hairs of our heads are numbered. How many hairs are on your head? Do you you actually have any idea? Some folks maybe, you know. But on the whole, no, no idea. God knows. God knows exactly how many hairs you have. And the point that Jesus is making here is, look, God takes care of the small things. God takes care of the minutia. God, don't look out there and go, well, my life is just full of all of these, these little random, seemingly random difficulties. There are all these little things going on and all these challenges I'm facing and, and you know, I got this little thing at work or at home or whatever. And, and I don't know, God, it's just small and insignificant. And I, and I, is God paying any attention at all? Oh, 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 yes. Yes, he is. God is paying complete attention. Total attention. And we can go to God and trust God and live our lives with consistency and fullness and worship of God and living the truth before God in every single area of our life. And we don't have to be afraid that, well, is God watching? I mean, if I, if I declare I'm a Christian, do you have any idea what might happen? Um, okay, maybe we don't have any idea what might happen, but God sure does. And that's the point Jesus is making. Quickly here. I say unto you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. 
He who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. What Jesus is saying here, and he moves now from our relationship to God the Father on to our relationship with Jesus. And our relationship with Jesus is this. We must confess Jesus before men. What does that mean? To confess is to say, to agree with, to say the same thing. When we confess our sin, what we say to God is that this thing I'm doing, it's not anything other than sin. If you have a problem going into stores and taking stuff that's not yours and hiding it in your pockets or in some various place and trying to get out of the store without paying for it, you do not have the mental illness of kleptomania. You have the sin of thievery. It's a sin. And the sooner you wake up and call it sin, the sooner you can go to God, pray, and see if God can't help you overcome your sin. When we redefine sin as some kind of sickness, some kind of illness, well, God doesn't promise to cure all of our illnesses, but he sure promises to give us victory over sin. So be careful about not owing up to your sin, to confess that what you're doing is sin. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. So that's what it is to confess. It's to agree with. It's to state. So when we confess Jesus, what are we saying? Jesus is the Messiah, which is who he said he was. We confess that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He is the one who has come to redeem us. Jesus is God's Messiah. And when we confess that before men... Jesus confesses us before the Father. This is an outward thing. This is something that we do. This is the life that we live. Now, we have to be, we have to be careful here that we don't... Okay, the whole point of this conversation that Jesus is having is to be aware of hypocrisy. So we need to be careful that we don't take this and become hypocritical about it. There's a tendency to want to take these kind of verses and say, oh, well, if we confess Jesus before men. So here's what we got to do. we got to get people to pray this little prayer in which they declare that Jesus is their Savior. And you pray this little prayer and you say it out loud. And there you go. Now you're saved. Because, well, you confess before men. You got, I mean, I even wrote the thing out. Oh, Lord, I am a sinner. You are my Savior. I believe Jesus died for me and rose again. And all i got to do is say that out loud in front of people. And that's it. Sign the little thing. Close the Gospel of John up. Throw it in a drawer somewhere and go live however I want. But I confess Jesus before men. Therefore, I must be saved. Okay. Don't go there. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is... That is the whole problem with the Pharisees. That's exactly how they approach the whole situation. Their entire approach to the whole Old Testament was exactly that. I just kind of do some little outward thing here, and that's going to somehow get the job done. No, we need to be transformed. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name do many mighty works? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Wait a minute. They confessed Jesus. They called him Lord, Lord. Yeah, with your lips. You just said it with your lips, but it didn't change who you were. You didn't become a transformed person. You didn't didn't actually live out 
the relationship you have with Christ because you didn't actually have one. You just thought you could say some magic words and like somehow that was going to get the job done. It never gets the job done. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when you confess me before men, which is when you get out and you live like you believe this, it's not just say, it's do. Once you understand that you truly are a believer, you truly believe that you are a sinner before God and his mercy has been poured into you. You've come to God and said, none of my works do me any good at all. I, I, I can't possibly please you with being a good person. First of all, I'm not a good person. I'm a selfish person. I'm a proud person. I'm a person who thinks highly of me. Okay, the minute you wake up to that and you go, okay, Lord, ah, my sin nature goes to the core of who I am. Will you please redeem me? Okay, the moment you actually come to God with that heart cry, you're never the same. You're never the same. And you can't help but tell people. You can't help but live that before people. You can't help but be a different person. You're driven now from gratitude for what God has done to be the person God desires you to be. You want to be the person God desires you to be. You want to take up your cross daily and follow Christ. The gospel is not this message of how God is going to come and take all of your dreams and all of your ambitions and all of those great things you want to accomplish in life. And if you just come to Jesus, he'll help you do all that. No, you came to Jesus and crucified all that. You came to Jesus and died to all that. Here are my dreams. Here are my ambitions. Here's all of this great thing that I thought was going to make me great. And I'm going to kill it all. I'm going to die to all of it. Come to you and say, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? What do you want to make me? What kind of ambition do you have for my life? Because whatever that is, that's what I'm going to do. That's salvation. And once you do that, you're never the same. And then you end up confessing that this is who you are and this is what you believe. You can't, you can't be quiet about it. If anybody wants to talk to you about life and what really matters and why do you do the things you do and how is it you are the person you are, it just comes bubbling out. Well, I believe that God has a plan for my life and he has sent Jesus to die in my place and because of that, I, I try as best I can to live up to what Jesus has done. You confess that before men. You live that before men. And if you do that, you know what? God will take you to heaven and Jesus will declare before the very angels that that's who you are. It won't be hypocrisy because we're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect. In this life. And we don't try to put on perfection in this life. We try to act as good as we can. With humility. And with a willingness to admit. That we're still sinners. And so we don't. We don't, we don't get together as Christians. And look down our long nose and condemn everybody. This is not what we're gathered here for. We are here. To experience the grace of God. 
in our lives personally and to share it with one another and to try our best to build one another up and to encourage one another and to strengthen one another. That's why we're here. We're all sinners. It's not a person seated in this room that isn't a sinner or a person listening. We all are. And by God's grace, we're going to see what we can do to encourage each other to live lives worthy of what God has called us to. Without hypocrisy. You don't have to be a hypocrite. You can genuinely seek to please God. And do so. This is what we're called to do. This is, this is the life that Jesus has given us. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are not simply seeking to give us a new article of clothing, to give us a new outward garment, to somehow turn over some kind of new leaf and somehow just outwardly act a little better. You are trying to transform who we are from our very hearts and to have it work its way out. Lord, may that be us. May we not try to put on some big act for everybody, but may that truly characterize who we are to the core of our being. We'll never be perfect in this life, but our hearts can desire that truly from you. So Lord, work in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to declare truth into a lost and dying world that so desperately needs to hear it. May our lives matter. May you bring people into our, into our life that we can share the truth with. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.